Welcome to Mind Rolling. This is David Silver. Hi, glad you're all listening. We have a great guest today, Dr. Linda Bender. And I became acquainted with Dr. Bender through her fantastic book, Animal Wisdom, Learning from the Spiritual Lives of Animals. I mean, as a title, that's enough. Hi, Linda. Welcome to the show. I am thrilled to be with you. Thank you. Um, You know, I want to, um, Linda's got a great bio on her website, which we're going to talk about her website a little later, but I couldn't articulate it any better. So I'm just going to excerpt a, a few facts about her. But I must start off with the quote at the top of the bio, which is, which is really intense and says a lot. The quote from Linda is, my lifelong relationship with animals has taught me that there are intelligent emotional beings capable of great compassion and love. Animals exist in a state of consciousness that is one with nature, connected to all life and closer to God. They graciously offer their divine, their divinely bestowed wisdom to those with open hearts and minds. All right, so that's a statement, and I'm now going to read a little bit about, just a small amount about Linda's amazing life. Uh, It starts off by saying, a passionate animal advocate, educator, and author, Dr. Linda Bender's love of the natural world began in her childhood backyard. From orphaned deer to blue jays, prematurely bumped from their nests, animals in distress somehow found a way to her loving arms. Her innate rapport with animals inspired her to earn a doctorate in veterinary medicine. During the 14 years she spent living in England, Asia, Africa, the Middle East, Linda's veterinary work included the rescue, rehabilitation, and protection of wildlife, often in remote areas. Working with zoos in Southeast Asia, she treated animals rescued from the wildlife trafficking trade and helped reintroduce them back into their natural habitats. I can't imagine anything more important than that at this stage of the planet. For over 25 years, Dr. Bender has practiced meditation and studied many of the world's wisdom traditions, including shamanism. Learning the traditions and wisdom of indigenous peoples enriched her understanding of the sacred connection shared by humans, animals, and nature. She's co-founder of the nonprofit charity From the Heart, From the Heart, and the author of the Amazon bestseller, Animal Wisdom, Learning from the Spiritual Lives of Animals. And she has been lauded and endorsed by such luminaries in this field or in any field as the amazing Dr. Jane Goodall, Dr. Deepak Chopra, Dr. Larry Darcy, many, many more. Linda's work has been in the Huffington Post, Natural Health, Spirituality and Health, and many other magazines. So, you know, your resume, I hate that word, but, yeah, you know, is, is, is so incredibly um, useful for us because um, you're not speaking from some kind of hippy-dippy, I want to help type of thing, which most of us are in, but you're speaking from intense uh, knowledge, experience, and practice. And what I wanted to start with, in the book, Animal Wisdom, which I highly recommend, not just to those of us that love and want to learn about and from animals, but for anybody who has a spiritual perspective or is interested in consciousness, this book is multi-leveled. And... At the beginning of the book, Linda talks about creation myths, about the naming of the animals. We all remember that from the beginning of Genesis, I suppose. Mm -hmm. 
That comes from that myth. But I wanted to make a little quote and then ask Linda to talk about it. Uh, the belief that every living thing has an individual soul is called animism. Anima, which means soul, is also the root of the word animal. I'd like you to take it from there and tell us the significance in your vision of the naming of the animals and that particular statement. Mm. When I speak to people wherever I go, and I, I, I always say the root word of anima, animal is anima, and it means soul. People are amazed. They're consistently surprised. And I take that to remind them that this, this culture that we live in now, we have been deluded into thinking that we are separate, that we, are, uh, we have a right to have claimed dominion over other life forms, that we are on this um, mountaintop and everything else is beneath us. But when we consider back that other cultures throughout history, throughout time, have understood this to be true, that all life is soul, all life is to be respected, it makes us think what has gone wrong. And that's when we can start. We can start from that place. What happened? Why did we lose the respect of other life forms on this planet? All we have to do is look around and see the results of us claiming dominion. And the reason I talked about naming something so simple as naming an animal, when we have a relationship with one being, be it a dog, a cat, a bird outside in our yard in a tree, we recognize that being as an individual. We get to know that individual. That individual becomes special. We name that individual. It begins to open up that understanding that, let's face it, we are all here together. We are all one. As it's almost becoming a cliche, we are all one. But we truly have a sacred connection to all life. What do you think, uh, you know, sort of briefly, because it's a huge question, but where did this alienation start, roughly? Why? Where? And I know, that, I know that's not an easy question to answer, but you, you, you mentioned at the beginning, when did we stop feeling bonded to the rest of the natural world? Well, uh, you know, to make, to keep it very simple, I mean, it's, it's multifactorial, but to, to, to the very bare bones, I say there are two main reasons. One is the traditional religions. Um, you know, we, the traditional Christian religions son, suddenly said that that's what they said. We have dominion. We are in control. We can use, abuse, and do whatever we want with all that is here on the earth. It is simply for us to use. Um, the second reason, and this has happened over the last couple of hundred years, is that science, you know, we flipped to thinking to think that science had all the answers for everything. Yes. didn't used to be true, actually. Science, uh, if you go not too far back, used to include the fact that animals were, were equal, were, so, were souls. 
But what has happened in um, uh, the materialist scientist view is, again, that everything is dead. All life is dead. And for some bizarre reason that no one can explain, human beings have intelligence, a brain that functions, and for some reason that still no one can explain, we're conscious. But that nothing else in the universe was conscious. Now, that thankfully is, is going out the door as it should. Um, as some scientists say, you know, science changes one, one funeral at a time. But that is beginning to change. Now, we are through, you know, the physics, of the quantum physics, et cetera, et cetera. We're beginning to realize that that's not true. But I think those are the two main reasons. Yes. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just imbibing that, actually. Okay, so given that we agree that uh, not only do animals have souls, and by the way, I've met people, um, actually some of the Christian faith who do not believe that, and I've always made a, a sort of, of connection course. between, you know, there then seems to be a natural yes. connection between uh, genociding them and eating them and factoring and all the terrible things that we do to animals right now. Because uh, if something doesn't have a soul, it's sort of a robot and you can just, you know, if it's R2-D2, you can make another R2-D2. So, exactly. I, you know, that seems one of the exactly. most you know, egregious yeah. things that you could possibly think. And we do. That's why it's convenient, you see, to keep, to maintain this illusion. Do you see why? It's, it's very, it's difficult and painful to address what we do and how we live when we begin to think that these are life forms uh, with emotions, feelings, uh, lives of meaning and purpose. It becomes tricky. That's why I say it's multifactorial here. That's why we call pigs units. Yes, the most disgraceful of all, semantical. I mean, that's just, we know how awful that is. We even call people we don't like pigs, which is even worse. Yes. Um, you know, now, your, you know, vision is is also bound up with what we learn from the consciousness that we begin to appreciate from animals obviously fantastic variegated thing on this planet billion millions of species some of them gone but still many of them yes but as a basic sort of fundamental what is the what is the thing you've learned most from accepting the sensitivity uh, of their consciousness. What do we learn by being around that that we've forgotten? Actually, there I have much to say on this, but I must tell you that my connection to animals uh, has been my whole life. You know, I, I tell the story when people say, ask me, what was it like before? When did this happen? I had no answer, and the only answer I could come up with, which uh, is the beginning story of my book about connecting with a, a bunny in my yard, but it's a, it, it is a bit of a difficult question for me because my whole life animals have affected my consciousness. I am on some level, and people think sometimes look at me funny, but I am um, somewhat imprinted by animals since I was a very young child. So I don't know. I never. It's never left me. It's been with me my whole life, and ha it has expanded. So I somehow don't know what other people are missing. 
<laughs> in other words, the fish doesn't actually know that it's water that it's in because that's what it's in. You know, and you're, you've been in this consciousness your whole life. Yeah. But I can explain through experiences that I've yeah. had. And that's why I've, I put so many stories and, and my experiences in my book because that's truly what I know. That's what I teach. I don't teach a dogma or something, well, this is what I think to be true. I simply teach a consciousness or come from a consciousness that is just who I am and my personal experiences. Now, when you were a young child, uh, I, I remember the, 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 the rabbit epiphany, really. You heard a rabbit screaming, correct? I did. It was yeah. the middle of the night, and uh, I was a little girl. I grew up in New Jersey, but we had a beautiful yard, and it was connected to a, a woods and an apple orchard. So all sorts of critters were always finding their way to my door because I came in a healer. You know, I, <laughs> yeah. here I am, yeah. and they have a way of, of knowing. <clears throat> so, yes, I was awakened, got my parents up, and it was about 2 or 3 a.m., and there was this tiny little quivering bunny out in the backyard on the second tier lawn so mom was gone it was in terror from some experience with another animal so I scooped the little bunny up brought it inside and said I'm taking care of this bunny for the rest of the night and holding it and I put it to my heart it could feel my my breathing my heartbeat and during that experience it was it's the earliest memory memory I could come up with of truly connecting in a way I had not before through my human connections that this little being and I were somehow one. We were somehow part of something that was much bigger. That tiny, frightened little bunny taught me that I was part of a larger source, a bigger consciousness. And it was taught to me through the love that swelled around us. Mm -hmm. And I suddenly felt that life had meaning, that this feeling, this energy, this frequency, this consciousness, whatever it was, had purpose and meaning in a depth that I didn't need to understand. It just was. You also talk in the book about seeing through the eye of the animal or the eye looking at you. Yes. And this is something I can relate to because yes. with every animal, I've had pets. I've never obviously been anything close to the number of animals you've been in, in natural habitats. But in, even in natural habitats, I did come across a mountain lion in Griffith Park once in Los Angeles. And I came upon him right there. I mean, I, he came through some bushes and he was sitting there pretty much on the end of a cliff. And he just looked and turned and looked at me and it was quite large, and that was about the biggest experience I've had with a, a wild animal. But with my cats and with dogs I've had, sometimes I notice that they're looking at me and I change. Mm -hmm. Some shift happens, not some, you know, some very fairy thing, but it's just, why am I acting like this? Mm -hmm. Obviously, the animal, my cat sitting right next to me now, is looking at me and somewhat confused by the vibes that are coming out of me, putting it like that. Mm-hmm. I'd love you to talk a little bit about your experiences with animals looking at you who are empathic with them and how that's transformed you. 
Oh my. When I was very young, again, my, my father took me to a zoo. He was my great champion. Um, and he said, come on, Linda, we're going to go. We're going to go see wild animals. And I was ecstatic, you know, jumping up and down. And <laughs> dad was this big, handsome, six foot two man. And he was um, holding me by the hand and he took me to a zoo. I'm not sure where it was, but uh, we walked toward a cage, a big iron bar cage. And the closer we got to it, the more upset I became. And my father couldn't figure out what was going on. And I squeezed his hand and I looked and I looked and I saw the most astonishingly beautiful black panther pacing back and forth by itself in this limited mm. space. And these eyes caught my eyes. And, and it was as if this being entered my being, our souls blended, and everything that that animal was feeling came in through my eyes, through his eyes. Into, we, our souls merged, and I felt all the pain and suffering and frustration that he was feeling. The eyes are those windows, the windows into the soul. Well, I started screaming and said, Daddy, get her out of there. Get her out of there. She wants to be free. And, of course, my poor dad didn't know what to do. But I'll never, ever forget those eyes that pulled me in soul to soul. And throughout my career as a veterinarian in the wild in, with my pets, Lauren Isley once said, we get to know who we are as human beings when we see the reflection of our own self in the eyes of a being that is non-human. So it is through that connection, one species to another, that we move more deeply into the soul connection, into the consciousness where we are not separate. Mm. And it was... Uh, another story from my book about a squirrel looking into the eyes of a squirrel that was dying on a roadside that flipped and caught my eyes. It was as if it was reaching up in its last death throes to catch my eyes because I was standing there figuring out, I'm pretty helpless, what could I possibly do? And I'll never forget staring in the eyes of that squirrel and I never saw the face of God more clearly in my life than in the eyes of that dying squirrel. He then fell over. But what that taught me um, was the power of presence. And I think that the power of presence is a great lesson that the animals teach us. When we catch their eye, be it a dog, be it a cat, be it you with your uh, wild animal, they catch us. They, they, they wake us up for a moment into the present, which is the only time anything ever happens. You know, I was in a park a few weeks ago and just walking, you know, because I walk all over the place. And there was a group of, of, I guess they were married women with children, maybe four or five of them with strollers and a large dog. And they were about 100, 100, 100 yards away, a long way away from me. But the dog was very visible because it was an orange color. I think it was a labradoodle of some kind. But it was orange, and it was in the summer, and it stuck out. And I took one look at it, and he leapt those hundred yards in about five seconds, 
mm-hmm. came to me, sat at my feet and stared in my eyes. Yes. And eventually one of the, uh, the mothers uh, had to actually come and get him and she had to drag him away. And I'm not saying that I was any great guru to this lovely dog, but there was no question that he or she, I don't know, let's say she, she, I hope it was she, she, she <laughs> just, you know, she just was staring at me and with great affection. And just like you said, I was looking into the eyes of God. If God is anything, you know, she's in nature uh, with no guile. There was no guile looking at me. She didn't want food from me. She knew she wasn't going to get it. She didn't want to run with me. She didn't move. And I was deeply affected by this and thought about it for days afterwards. And I actually went back to that park to see if I could find that dog. Couldn't. And I want you to talk about that, the no guile aspect. The beauty, the beauty of no guile, no manipulation. Yeah, they might a pet might manipulate you a little bit because she learns how to do that to get yes. her. But in terms of out there in a park or in the veldt, which you were, or wherever you're in the amazing places you've been, talk to us about what we can learn and how we can grow mm. from being perceived by a being with no guile. Yes, being perceived by a being of another species is the word, the first word that comes to my mind. It's, it's purity. Mm. It is a pure, non-diluted, innocent, yet, yet filled with wisdom. Mm. That is the connection. It's real. It's awake. Animals are awake. They live in that consciousness that is less diluted than the consciousness that we have unfortunately been stuffed into. You know, we're, we're, we're so stuck in our heads. And animals are in their heads too. Don't get me wrong. They spend a great deal of their time, particularly those in the wild, surviving. That's what keeps them so awake and so present. You know, they have to be. And yet they share respect for another living being, whether they're wanting to eat you for lunch or whether they want just to stare at you, whether they want to share wisdom with you, whatever. They still see you as another living being. Not um, That's the purity of it. We share this earth together. You know, nature works beautifully on its own. It works tremendously. It is successful. We as humans are the ones who get in there and mess it up. And they sometimes more quizzically wonder, what are we about? But I also believe that now they're beginning, they sense our pain, you know, not only particularly with the large land mammals in Africa, they sense our pain because they also, they know the destruction we are causing to them, but it's become so, you know, they can no longer live in blissful ignorance of us. So we're closer engaged with them. They see our pain. They see what's going on, not only what we're doing to them, but what we're doing to ourselves. And there is great sadness there. So their spirit automatically absorbs our spirit. But if our spirit is troubled, do you believe that then there is 
a dynamic which we can call compassion from an animal. Oh my goodness, animals taught me compassion. Okay. Um, yes, animals teach compassion. And we sometimes see videos, you know, on YouTube. Oh my gosh, this is so amazing. One species showing compassion for another species. Mm. As, as if this is <laughs> yeah. some sort of freak behavior. Yes, yes. We are very naive. This is not unusual. This is usual. It is normal. You know, there is empathy, sympathy, compassion, love, all the Rolodex of, uh, uh, of things that we experience, animals experience too. They are not us. They are different. They are separate. But these things we all share. You know, we, we share. And animals, if you let them, and I think that may have been the case with that dog, you know, you're, you're giving off an, an energy. You're in a consciousness. They understand it. And they see you recognize them as, as somebody who matters. They love that. We become irresistibly charming to animals when they pick up on the fact that, hey, they recognize me. And every animal wants to be recognized as, hey, I have meaning. I am alive. And animals love themselves. That's a great lesson we need to learn from our dogs. They love who they are. They love what they look like. They wonder why we don't think such good things about ourselves. They can see that. They can feel yes, that. Yes, of course. How down the chain, the Darwinian chain, if you like, I hate to use that expression, but okay, we can. I can see a dog like that, and obviously elephants and dolphins and all those cliches that we hear all the time about yes. these intelligent, so-called intelligent animals. What about, I mean, what about insects? You know, Deepak Chopra asked me this question um, once. Well, where do you draw the line, Linda, you know, mm. with intelligence and emotion and all that and having a soul? And I said, you know, Deepak, I thought, this one I have thought a lot about. I don't draw the line. Mm. There is no line. I think that's just not the right question. The question is not who is intelligent, who isn't, who is worthy, who isn't, who is greater, who is lesser. It all, it, it, it is all one. We can't right, have right. one meaning and one not meaning. It's all together. It doesn't mean it's the same. That's it's what I'm asking, same. really. In other yeah. words, you know, yes, one can't draw lines. I would, thought, I would have thought no one would have thought that. But in, in terms of oh, the way do. you can, re- yeah, they do. Of course, they do that with human do. beings, too. Um, you know, that, that person is not, never going to understand me and I don't want to talk to them, which sometimes is correct. But the judgment of it is where the problem is. But in, in, the, in the animals that, that, and insects, I mean, I've observed insects many times in my life, you know, because you can, because they're so small. Of course you can. You know, you can, and yes. the insect yeah. that has captivated me most, uh, and this is nothing new, are ants. Because I oh, see yeah. the enormous, incredible labor that goes on unconditionally when they carry things they move things together they persist you know and i can't help but when i look at them that they seem to be very gentle and and beautiful and yet when we were children certainly in england where i was growing up you know insects were sort of like crush them if you can Right. And I never felt happy about that. But I was also part of it as a child. You know, you, you see a, a cockroach or something that doesn't appeal to you. 
and you might want to kill it. Different. You want to step on it. Well, I, yeah. I love that you brought up ants because this is something I it's very important to me because I spend so much time living in strange places in the world and dealing with, you know, the great animals. And we, we, we all relate to the elephants and the tigers and pitching in, but we tend to forget ants. Well, when I wanted to dive even more deeply into my connection to animals, and I'm not talking about verbaling, verbalizing with with creatures for superficial purposes to prove that I can connect. I get in trouble with a lot of people about that because words actually don't matter, you know, and animals don't speak in words. We assign words. So most of my life, animal communication had absolutely nothing to do with words. There are heart and soul connections that are way beyond words. That's an aside. But there I was in South Africa. I spent several weeks in the Kalahari Desert with the the San people. And there are very few of them left. And I I considered this uh, a sacred blessing that I was able to spend time with them. And the first thing they did was this one beautiful man took me out into the, the, the savannah, into the bush. And it was very sparse. I mean, this is... Often sand and dry and whatever, and he made me lie down on my side on the ground. And I thought, okay, okay, <laughs> you know, I'm open for anything. <laughs> and he made me lie down and put press my ear to the ground, to the sand. And he said, Now listen to the culture of the ants. Mm. Mm. That was my teaching for the day. And I'm sure you needed a day when you really got into it, right? I mean, and it it, it took me to a play. I I knew nothing that was going to happen. Uh, you know, my my science mind went okay. <laughs> you know? right. um, and but finally, I shut my was able to shut down the monkey mind, and I got into it. And then I entered a whole other place that I had never been before. So I learned the culture of the ants in a way it's very difficult for me to describe. But it was something that imprinted and and was was very, very intense, I'm sure. It wasn't just, oh, I see they're moving around. That's good. They go there. They do this. It wasn't about that. It is an entirely intense culture that we are just completely not part of. Intelligence. Um, communication, a whole, uh, a whole like a mini planet of beings that we just are not conscious of uh, going on right there. Intelligence, wisdom, work, uh, relationship. Yes. Yes, right there. So we're talking about indigenous people's sensitivity. Somewhat we're talking about this. Uh, to all creatures, great and small. Um, can you talk a little bit about the significance of of uh, totems, of, of animal totems? Uh, the ones that I came across in the Pacific Northwest were the most amazing to me. Many of them were fish. But on the sides of canoes and on the totems themselves, the depictions of the animals were just somehow powerful, but I couldn't 
verbalize it. It just was, wow, look at that. So mm-hmm. beautifully drawn and so sensitive and yet also impressionistic. They didn't really look exactly like an animal, but there was something coming off them. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship between not just shamans, but, you know, everyone back then and even now, and these drawings and, you know, sort of art, actually, that is the totemic exchange. What is that really, what is going on there? Is what well, I, I, you know, I believe that, of course, you know, animals have abilities, call it um, psychic abilities, connections, things that are, remain more latent in human beings and uh, people like, my good friend Rupert Sheldrake uh, and many others, well, actually not many others, have, mm. have, have spoken on this. And so we know that things are going on with animals that we cannot explain. I mean, things as, sim- as simple as, you know, fish instantly moving, you know, it, in a split second and yes. no bumps into one another. I mean, we, can, we actually cannot explain these things. Um, homing. homing. We simply don't know how homing works. And I, you know, cultures, aside from ours, the indigenous cultures, they understood this. They had a reverence and an acceptance of these other cultures. And so they were revered. And as far as totems, you know, people often say to me, well, um, you know, a tiger is my totem or this is my totem. Well, in my life experience, I, I all animals are totems and all animals have their wisdom to teach. For example, the great tortoises, the great turtles hold, I believe, and in my experience hold the, the ancient wisdom. Um, and if you, if you are fortunate enough to be able to, come into a, what do I want to say, uh, a relationship with one of those beings, doesn't matter whether they're incarnate or they're uh, discarnate, you can actually gain the wis- their wisdom through that connection with them. doesn't necessarily require words, but you almost uh, imprint it. It becomes part of your biology, the, wis- the ancient wisdom. And that's what the cultures did. That is what the cultures did. Um, You can do it with trees. Um, But I do believe that at different periods of your life, animals will come in and serve as totems to you. But it doesn't necessarily have to be a lifelong event. It can be. But the drawings, this this is in reverence, you know, to beings who have much to teach. Okay, I want to throw another quote to you, which you quote, which I loved. It said, the quote is, Mahatma Gandhi said that the greatness of a nation can be judged by the way its animals are treated. So how great are we in the United States of America? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are uh, we great or are we miserable? We're miserable. And, yeah. and I also, you know, part of my nonprofit work is with uh, helping me large land mammals hopefully not go extinct because if things go the way they are in 10 years we won't have elephants anymore in the wild Mm. but and so everyone focuses the problem on Africa or in China but what I tell people is that 
the United States is the number two market for animal body parts. So we are not doing such a great job in this country. And, and as far as our um, dogs and cats, the number one cause of death in healthy under two-year age dogs and cats is euthanasia. This is not an animal problem. This is a human problem. Mm. We have a lot of work to do. A lot of work to do. Yeah, I, you know, I, half of my life is around that. Yes. You know, no euthanasia at the Humane Society of New York. But it, 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 the humane, the people who are conscious about this understand this totally. But there is such ridiculous ignorance around, for instance, gifting animals, which is one of the worst things you can do. Bad idea. And, you know, and, and we hear stories of animals being thrown out of cars and all this. And, it's, and you know, for me, there's a direct correlation between that and, um, shall we say, the, 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 the um, mentality that's um, cheering at Donald Trump's horrendous meetings. Uh, in other words, yes, we are fascists to animals. So how difficult it is, how difficult isn't it to say, okay, well, those Mexican people that come into the country are basically what he said, which was the most disgusting thing I've ever heard said by a politician in the United States. He's made much worse statements since then. But, you know, I've been thinking recently that this fascism probably starts with the way we, the way we treat animals. I mean, yes. it's a, isn't it a statistical fact that many psycho killers and psychotics and psychopaths start their horror by hurting animals? They start with animals, yes, and work their way up. Yes, this is this is very true. And there's a quote, gosh, um, St. Francis once said, you know, if you have a, a man or being who will be hurtful and, and mean to an animal, they will treat their fellow being exactly the same. So there is no difference. And that's, you know, I talk about reciprocity in my book. You know, what we do to one, we do to the other. And, and when we, when we are, uh, destroy the habitats and uh, poach animals, we have no better consciousness for our own fellow human beings. Look at how we treat our own fellow human beings. So, it, of course, you know, Gandhi was right on. You know, Gandhi was once asked, you know, I'm, sh I'm sure you know, you know, what, how were you able to conquer the, that huge British British Empire, and, and he said it was the small, deep voice within hmm. that convinced them. It is that small, deep voice within the heart that changes everything. A question I have to ask you is that you are so much closer to both the joyous and the hideous around yes. the animal kingdom, the 99.9% recurring of everyone we know, including intellectuals, including professors, including gurus, whatever. Because right. this has been your life. It's been and my you've, life. You've seen, I'm sure, such incredible things. But you've also seen, it would seem to me obvious, you've seen such atrocious relationships between we humans and, and them. Yes. The worst. How do you maintain, I'm looking at you right now, how do you maintain, you, you seem so radiant and happy. How do you maintain, how do you not get really angry and depressed at these maniacs who are hurting animals all over the planet forever? How do you maintain optimism and joy? How do you do that? I, I, I I'll tell you that, again, I could go on for, I'm actually putting a course together about this very thing because 
in the past year and a half that I've been traveling, and I've never spoken to so many people before in my life. And between the um, the Zulu Sangomas and the animals, so I've been pushed out to to teach humans what I know. It's not easy. Um, but again, I learned as a young veterinarian. Um, I used to fear it was a it was a subliminal fear that this deep love and passion I have for animals was a weakness and not a strength. And I only this came to, to be true when I was in Asia and I was working as a vet and I was told to come and rescue these animals were coming in and the, the, the story is also in my book. And hyacinth macaws are probably the most gorgeous bird on the planet. Mm -hmm. And they arrived, uh, I was ready to treat, and I arrived at the clinic and they were there on the ground, dead, in front of me, lined up like dead soldiers. And at that moment, it was the moment when I, I fell to the ground. I didn't want to get up. I wanted to die with those birds. And I said... I cannot take it. I cannot do this. I cannot live in a world where this cruelty is just, it, I'm overwhelmed, I can't do it. And I, I, I speak of what happened to me. And what I learned is now what I feel so deeply and so impassioned to teach is that we mustn't stop in that broken place, that that is almost the beginning of the journey. When we face the horror, we we look it in the face, and through a daily practice, through understanding uh, the real meaning of a spiritual path, a mystical teaching, we see through that pain. It's it, it's what Gandhi said. It's what Martin Luther King said. We must bear the suffering. We must bear the suffering in order to see beyond. And when we can see it, yet see beyond it, we are strong. That is where we get our strength. Because if we deny, if we say, no, 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 you know, the faux spirituality that says, no, no, nothing's real. It's all illusion. Don't worry about it. It's not real. That's fake. That's almost neuroses. But we can't die in the misery either. We must see through what's going on. And yes, ultimately, this is stuff we've created. It's horrible, this misery we've created. And in some sense, yes, it is illusion. But we're living here. Right. And we're meant to do something about it. That's why I am here. I am here to do something to stop what is going on. That's why I'm, what else am I doing here? <laughs> but I, I tell people you must have a spiritual practice. You must be able to see through what's going on. It's the only way we can survive, <clears throat> survive today. We must see it, but we must not be broken by it, but we must carry on stronger. Like Florence Nightingale, um, Credo Mutwa said to me, he said, you're on a path. But you are carrying the light like Florence Nightingale carried the light. You are the light. And that light shines out from you. Mm -hmm. 
and affects the darkness. The darkness then cannot destroy you. You are the light that brings out the change. Wow. I mean, just hearing you say that, it, it, it makes me think, not for the first time, but for the first time in this, with this kind of depth, that empathizing and understanding and aiding and interacting with the animals, what could possibly be a better spiritual practice than that? Because yeah. then you are really engaging uh, oneness. It's easy to engage oneness in a yoga studio in Santa Monica with a bunch of great people and they're sitting there in their lovely yoga pants and, you know, etc. And you're all of one yes. mind and it's lovely. Yes. Um, but <laughs> sometimes, you know, I've I, I got to tell you, the biggest change for me was when one time, you know, you drive from L.A. to San Francisco and, you take the coastal road. Uh, a friend of mine once, an animal lover, said to me, we're not going to do that. We're going to take, I guess, 10 inland. It takes a lot longer and you just go inland. There's a certain point, not that far from San Francisco, but somewhere in Northern California, where the cattle, the McDonald's and Burger King uh, concentration camps are located. And my friend Marty, who's an amazing man from Harvard, said, let's go as close as we can. Yeah. And we went very close. The smell yes. was like nothing I've experienced since. It was one of the most horrific moments of my life. Yes. And I was revulsed in a way that I think wouldn't be that different from visiting Auschwitz in 1940. That was yeah. a change for me in terms of, I'm not saying I became a super vegetarian or vegan or anything, but I knew then that we were slaughtering masses of these beautiful, gentle, guileless, godlike, sentient beings. Yes. And we didn't even feel a conscience about it. And until men and women like you, although there's no one quite like you, but there are legions of people now yes. who are beginning to articulate this. Before then, well, I mean, even, okay, in the 19th century or before that, hunters, whatever, fine. I, I'm not thrilled about that but if you were needed protein and you're out there in right. 1621 somewhere in maryland right. yeah but this is not hunting this is not this is mass mass production yes. that we all have heard about but when i saw it and it was on a hill and i looked down and saw these things where they were crushed inside with each other and this horrendous odor was coming from them and marty said you will cry as we were driving up there and i said no, i don't usually cry i just absorb and i burst into tears and was lost for a while. And yes. in the drive up to San Francisco, a place I adore, yes. I just couldn't speak. I was, and I'm not particularly like that. I can usually talk. I couldn't speak. I was so devastated. Yes. And, you know, you just articulated, you know, there's a way through this. You can't be broken by it, but you, you can also not. can't avoid it. What is well, your advice to people on how to both confronted and yet not you just actually you answered this already so let me let me get, go a step further how can we use right. this horror that we're all involved with whether we go into burger king or not we still walk past it and we don't go ah and 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 right and, and run in and grab people no because that doesn't work but right. what we there are things there are specific things we can do there are specific things actually we must do because people say I hear this all the time. I'm just one person. 
I can't, you know, I can't do anything. I can't do this. And I say, listen, you are doing things every day, every decision you make, every choice you make, you are making a difference. Think about your choices. Pay attention to your choices. Are they the choices that are leading to the consequences that are in your belief system? You know, don't eat at McDonald's. You know, if you can do one thing, don't stop eating red meat. You know, there are a multitude of things. Stop speeding when you go down the road. If you see a hurt, I mean, I have a whole chapter in my book on very simple things we can all do. But importantly, when you get up in the morning and I teach people this, it's this my life. You know, I've seen just about everything you can imagine. I cannot start my day without a moment of quiet, I I meditate, pray, and contemplate every morning. I would never think of putting on the news, flinging myself into the craziness that is out there on the uh, you know on the news. It, it's in, it's insane. You must start your day in a way where you are in that place where you can see through the suffering. Do you understand what I'm saying? I believe. I don't know how people who don't have some sort of spiritual practice can can face anything. For me, it's a it, it, it's it's essential a meditation, a quiet time, a connecting with who you truly are in your heart and soul. Then you go out to the world. Then the way you treat people in whatever line of work you do, whether you work in a grocery store or whether you work in a shoe store, whether you you have a yoga studio. You approach all life from from a stronger place, and then you can take in what comes to you. But I face the world saying, "God, I'm here. Use me today." I come. I tried my best to come from a place of where I am the vehicle that God, whatever you want to call source, works through that light that shines through out to the world. We must end here, and it's a great sort of statement, inspiring statement, beautifully said that you just did. So I want to end here. I want to, um, you also need to run, I think. Um, I want you to just talk a little bit about your website and and your um, uh, and that. Talk, tell people how to get to it and what it is and the various dimensions of it. Okay, I'd love to. Um, very quickly, you can... Find me at lindabender.org.org. And on there, you can figure out all the mischief I'm getting up to. My, um, my nonprofit information is there. Uh, also, I have a page uh, that I work with Rupert Sheldrake on unexplained powers of animals. Most everything is on there. And um, you can learn all about me. My book, you can even get to my book uh, on Amazon through there. And I hope uh, everyone reads it because part of the proceeds go to my nonprofit. And do I have just a, a minute or two to just of say one of or course. two? Things? Absolutely. Just on this consciousness idea, you know, we're so intrigued by consciousness, no one understands it. But I want to say that there's a line from the Bhagavad Gita that says, when you feel the suffering, of every living thing in your own heart, that is consciousness. 
And that is how animals can help us change the consciousness of the world. Wow. I, I have to remind you, you mentioned to me this incredible pendant you're wearing, and you wanted to mention that, so please do. Oh, yes. Well, it's hard to see, but the wonderful designer Gurhan um, created this gold pendant, and it's, it, it's a paw print. And it's available in New York at his atelier. It's Gurhan. He's got a website. But this is everyone who buys this. There are two sizes. Part of the proceeds goes directly to my nonprofit from the heart, which benefits directly animals. And there are no middlemen. <laughs> How do you spell Gurhan for our listeners? G-U-R-H-A-N, Gurhan. Okay, and the atelier is. Do you know the address in New York? It's in Tribeca. All right. But he's all. You can you can Google him. All the groovy things are in Tribeca. All the cool things are in Tribeca. <laughs> and if I have time, I have. There's a wonderful poem I could. May I close with? Of course. It's um. Again, helpful. Uh, it's what keeps me going every day, and I suggest if people want to do this for themselves, to write your own little poem, but I'd just like to say mine. O oh, great spirit, to better serve the animals, in humble prayer I ask, show me what I need to see. Teach me what I need to learn. Show me truth. Ignite my heart. Transform my being so that I may serve as a vehicle through which your voice flows out into the world, helping those who have no voice. So I ask everyone to speak a voice in your heart. Make a difference in this world. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Linda Bender. This was a totally enlightening and we could probably do 10 of these, and we'd still not have time. Because in the book, if I can just make this point, you're not reading a book. If you just you know, don't want to read a book about animals, well, don't think that's what this is, even though that would be great. It's a book about conscience and about consciousness. Uh, it, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's a multidimensional experience reading your wonderful book. And we're honored to have you, and I hope we can speak to you again. Have a lovely day, Linda. Thank you so much.